And a big welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And today is the penultimate program before the big one. That's the Radiothon program. I have a substantial target to reach, but over all the station's target is $250,000. All needed to keep the station running 24 hours, 7 days a week. No holidays for us. I'm counting on regulars and maybe people who just listen occasionally to help me reach that target. And if you donate on the day, it will be announced on the following Tuesday, but only if that is what you wish. Either way, you are entitled to tax deductibility for your donation. You can phone 94198377, go to the webpage 3cr.org.au slash donate, or donate direct to the 3CR Donations account. The name is Community Radio Federation's Donation Account, BSB 313140, account number 12059465. And for reference, put your name. So more of that next week. But for today, Vicky John, working for nearly 30 years for Bougainville's independence, and exposing the criminal actions of mining companies working in the Pangurna gold and copper mine there. The rise of independence in Australian federal politics. Work ahead to keep the ALP to keep its promises. Binoy Campmark, writer and academic, will be talking about these and other issues. We go back to the dark days of World War II in England for the beginning of the life and work of Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees. Free Palestine, Melbourne, only been in, in existence for a couple of years, but making an impact. Speaking with Melissa Avon, international human rights lawyer, who has been a member for most of that time. And as always, we begin with Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. I hope you can stay with me for the two hours, and then we have come by law. A week, Jane Lister, when the great exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all called on the socialist government to prove its socialist credentials by rescuing them from soaring energy prices because those great energy exponents, great transnational behemoths charging the soaring prices had no choice but to, given the soaring international prices for the gas and coal they are exporting. Uh, but... We asked naively, obviously you could provide the energy here with the resources you extract here much, much cheaper. Revealing to them my vacuous ignorance of how the greatest little economic order of them all works. No, no, the only solution in the soaring prices is by the government to prove it is socialist and assist the exponents of capitalism who at times like these have a road to Damascus conversion to socialism. Although that simplification is also naive as as great exponents of capitalism, they are always supporters of corporate welfare socialism. Though sadly, yet again, we can't compete with Santos us, the prophet supremo Kevin Gorlager, who said Santos us cannot conjure up gas magically to ease the energy shortage, and warned emergency measures to divert gas for export to the domestic market would be damaging. How can we compete with that? That says it all. Although, while we might think the fact that they are exporting our resources at huge profit has a bit to do with the soaring domestic prices, 
Lord Rupert Wapping's usual suspect, brilliant thinker, columnist, bolt through the head, has fingered the problem. It's the socialist government itself. It has taken them just two weeks to destroy the energy market. Very clever socialists bent on destroying the class enemy. Bloody stupid voters. Well, 30% of them. 30% who handed them 100% of the spoils. Yet another endorsement for the democratic values, the democracy bit of parliamentary democracy. And the great exponents of crying out for government assistance declared they were in far greater need of assistance than struggling households who would not be struggling nearly as much as the great corporations and therefore didn't need scarce government resources wasted on them. And they certainly don't need a wage rise that would further cripple the great exponents. Despite a report by the Fair Work True Blue Aussie, no longer work choices just looked like it con mission, showing sectors like hospitality, retail, those areas crying out for help, have in fact regained their pre-pandemic strength, undermining caring employers' cry that a wage rise for the lowest of low paid must be delayed. Well, we know caring employers will always tell us when the time is right for a wage rise. And, and it's just unfortunate that in the long, long history of capitalism, the greatest local economic order of them all, the time has never been right, which must break the caring employers' hearts, with a huge presumption, of course, in the heart department. Expressed beautifully by Claire Morgan for us, an executive with the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, who warned a wage increase would hurt small business already dealing with high inflation and rising interest rates, factors that obviously don't affect the lowest of low paid. Oh, and she is confident the sector is set for growth, just not enough apparently to pay the lowest of low paid. No need to expand, but our hold maintenance will cost the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group yet again supported that argument. A wage rise would destroy the world as we know it. Still, there's also good news. As the filthiest rich of the filthy rich assembled in Davos to discuss poverty, Oxfam reported that the pandemic has thrown up a new billionaire every 30 hours, while one million people fall into poverty at the same rate, giving those billionaires plenty to talk about. If the Santos us the prophet's comment wasn't enough bad news for satire, what a disgraceful bunch that hayseed and sheepshit party lot turning a potential dream into a nightmare. We finished last week hoping beyond hope for the dream team of Constable Peter Duffer and Barnacle to head the coalition. A satirist dream, we declared, and how dare they thwart that promise by dumping poor Barnacle, their, their new Supremo little proud so well-named because he has nothing to be proud of, a spoil sport. But at least the caring business class party did us a favour by making Constable Peter Duffer their supremo and would be big supremo, showing the obvious depth of talent left in the rump that is their party room. The new soft caring Pete said he would now support the robust anti-corruption commission proposed by independent Helen Haynes. So it can investigate the Socialist Party's links with, you know, like militant evil trade unions. The reason is I think it's more important than ever under the all-being-easy, you know, like government, 
we're going to have a continuation of this like unholy alliance with the CFMEU, the ETU, the, you know, MUA and the Socialist Party. The new soft, cuddly Pete got off to a big start, showing he's not the cruel, heartless, arch-conservative boofhead everyone thought he was. Like it was more important before the election not to have an anti-corruption authority, although maybe he hasn't thought this one through all that well, as the government plan is to use a robust anti-corruption body to investigate little matters like sports rorts and car park rorts, and, well, there's a list. But then, thought, of course, isn't one of Pete's strong points. But to show he's absorbed the message the election massacre delivered, Pete said he would play like, you know, hardball on the socialist climate change policy because it threatens to increase prices and disrupt the reliability of supply. wonder if anyone's mentioned to him that's the very policy people voted against leaving us to ponder what message he thinks he got. Anyway, he's off to a big start. And his deputy, Susan Lees and Dregs, who went to the High Court to prove as Environment Minister she had no duty of care to future generations, giving her carte blanche to continue destroying their environment, said she would work to win back the vote of women who deserted the coalition. Though she couldn't quite explain why they deserted, because she said former big supremo Scuttlebem Morlashson, a.k.a. Scummo, had done so much for women which we would have thought explains why. Showing Susan, too, has absorbed the message. The defeated scummo prepared to address the nation to, th to thank it for commemorating a sorry day before, thankfully, wiser heads explained to him that it had nothing to do with him. It was for people to whose plea from the heart statement from the hearts scummo had responded with no heart, or, as Constable Duffer explained on why he had refused to say sorry, it was because of his warm, caring self's role as a Queensland a copper. I was sorry that I couldn't, you know, like, legally bash the shit out of them anymore. The new caring Peter is so different, isn't he? Oh, and he's also concerned about the forgotten people in the suburbs, and here we can give Pete some reassurance. Pete, people in the suburbs didn't forget your lot or you. And the new warm Pete just keeps giving. Like when the government said the Murugapan family could return to Biloela, Pete said this would encourage people smugglers and end in like tragedy. Just a pity he didn't elaborate on, like you know, how it would encourage them and end in tragedy. And we also learned this week that when Scummo pre-election said the government's hands were tied and it couldn't allow the family to return to Queensland, he had misled us. Misled? Isn't that in this case a euphemism for lying? Oh, no, no, not Scummo, honest, great Christian Scummo. Oh, and the discarded member for the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, Tim Will Smash Union son, laughingly described as a moderate, if the designation were accurate, the mind boggles at what would be to his right. Tim said he wants to offer a constructive, centre-right voice to the climate and energy debate. So thank goodness in the interests of that debate, he is now a voice crying in the wilderness. We've got to be critical of the gross disrespect the people of Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country are showing for a nonagenarian who has been on the throne for 70 years. 
that's the most serious case we ever heard of. We'd think we could have some sympathy, although with the massive wealth she extorts from those people, we'd also think they could afford a bit of treatment for her unfortunate condition. Finally, despite Scummo thinking Sorry Day was in his honour, he was wrong yet again. But as we hold Reconciliation Week and Marbo Day, we must concede our Indigenous brothers and sisters show they are a lot more caring than even Constable Duffer and Innes will cost the workers by being prepared to reconcile with those who in 230 years have done so much to destroy their country and its inhabitants. Perhaps we should contribute by reversing the destruction. Oh dear, the Santos the Prophet's boardroom has collapsed. A, a sorry day. Good afternoon. Mr Kevin Healy, he'll be back next week. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. Today the story of an activist, a story which has travelled full circle, beginning with a campaign to stop a mine which has devastated communities on an island to the northeast of Australia, Bougainville, to the situation in 2022 where some members of that same community have decided, whether under extreme pressure or not, to allow that mine to reopen. I'm talking about the Panguna Gold and Copper Mine and the activist Vicky John. Vicky, your life has been one of activism for many decades. Does that activism come from your family? Were your parents an influence on you? Is it in your blood? Yes, it probably was. My dad was a union man and worked in a coal mine in the Wollongong area and strong unionist. And I remember tagging along with my father on the May Day marches in Wollongong and that's probably one of my first memories. I also remember at high school when the Vietnam War was on and two fellows at my high school were going, were being conscripted to go to Vietnam and they opposed the idea of going. So a bunch of people, I just remember kind of witnessing it and being in support of these two chaps. People roped themselves to the um, railway lines in Wollongong at the um, railway station to stop the train from going. That was, you know, supposedly taking all these um, young guys over to uh, fight the Vietnam War. So I guess that's where it kind of all started way back in the past. But the reason why I got involved with Bougainville was that, again, in Wollongong, this is like the mid-'80s, I guess, the, my friends in Wollongong were actually going to go to Bougainville and I'd never heard of Bougainville in my life, to tell you the truth. Anyway, so long story short, um, we were all invited to their, like, a barbecue for, like, a farewell for them before they went to Bougainville. 
And when we were at the barbecue, they said, everyone come in the lounge room and watch this video. And it was a um, a video put out by the mining company, Bougainville Copper Limited. It was like a propaganda video and it was called My Valley is Changing. I was absolutely horrified seeing the forest getting bulldozed. It had a real impact on me. And I couldn't help at the end of that documentary saying to everybody who was there, what about the people? What about the people who live on Bougainville? You know, I was disgusted in what I saw. Anyway, it took many years later, so say mid-80s, in 1993, Easter 1993, I attended a massive protest in the middle of the South Australian desert, not far from Woomera, at a place called Narunga. And I guess I think there was at least 200, at least 200, which was a lot of people then, in the middle of the desert, camping out, opposing the um, U.S. spy base at Narunga and in support of Aboriginal land rights. And the um, the First Nations people were Kakukatha people who had invited all the protesters there to help try and get the U.S. base off their land. In that protest, which is Easter 1993, is when I met the late Moses Havini. And Moses was walking around the campsite introducing himself to people and we met and I said to Moses, where are you from, Moses? And Moses said, I'm from Bougainville. And I went, what? You're from Bougainville? And of course, then I just rambled on about this terrible film, this footage that I'd seen called My Valley is Changing, put out by the mining company Bougainville Copper Limited. And from that point on, I haven't stopped actually working as an activist for Bougainville. Was Moses from that area of the mine or elsewhere? He was from Booker, but um, both Marilyn and four kids were living in Arawa, which was not far from where the Panguna mine was. And Moses was an activist himself, fighting for independence for Bougainville for a long, long time, particularly a protest where Moses sadly got shot with bullets, rubber bullets, I think they were. But, yeah, he's got the scars of that from a 1975 protest where it was the fight for independence for Bougainville and in the lead-up to Papua New Guinea gaining its independence in September 1975. That's interesting you say that, 1975, because most people, for pretty good reasons, would only believe that the fight for independence happened 20, 30 years later. The struggle for Bougainville has been going on for a long, long time. Bougainville basically is, uh, yeah, it's, it's still fighting for its independence, even though, you know, in 2019 there was a referendum on independence where 97.7% of the people of Bougainville have voted for independence. They haven't been granted in- independence yet because the Papua New Guinea government have to ratify the outcome. And we still wait. We still patiently wait. Go back to that time with Moses. When did you first meet Marilyn? And what did you find out about how those two people met? I also met Marilyn um, at that protest. I think it was the next day. And uh, both Marilyn and Moses held a a meeting of the protesters to let them know about what was happening on Bougainville. So I also met Marilyn at that same protest in 1993. Marilyn and Moses met each other, I forget what year it was, 
many years ago and uh, married. And in those days, I, I, must, I think it must have been the 60s, sadly, of quite a, one of those things where, like, oh, my goodness, a white woman marrying a black man. You know, so that's kind of deal. On both sides, they got treated unfairly in the sense that it was a, a forbidden thing to do in that time, to be married in the sense not to someone of the same colour, shall we say. So Marilyn Moses actually tolerated a lot over time, just going off the path a bit here. But I found when I was working closely with Moses and, you know, dragging him off to union offices and, you know, the trade union and all that sort of stuff and meeting politicians and things, I noticed when when I was even, you know, so I'm going in the 90s and then the 2000s, that even when I, at times when I was walking down the streets of Sydney with Moses, I'd get glared at. It was the most uncomfortable, horrendous feeling you could ever have. And, I mean, I you have to push it aside. You know, I work so closely with Moses. I have so much respect for Moses. You kind of brush those things aside. But sadly, you know, that racist thing still exists. Was there a support group at that time or did you help set up a support group? Yes, um, so back to 1993, we decided at the protest that we'd have a meeting when we got back to Sydney, you know, contact other fellow activists, and we met at a cafe in Newtown, I think it was like a couple of weeks later, three weeks later. There was quite a few of us there, and people I had never met before, and that's where we started the Bougainville Freedom Movement in a cafe in Newtown, Sydney. So from that, we, you know, reached out to other activists in other states of Australia, overseas or internationally, and away we went from there. I imagine that not many people knew what was happening on Bougainville. No, Bougainville was unheard of. So it took a lot of campaigning, a lot of uh, leaflets given out to the general public, protests, you know, particularly the mob down in Melbourne, you know, they were fantastic, you know, with protests at where the army trains Queenscliff, where the, um, there was a lot of um, Australian, uh, an Australian army base, I think, where the PNG, Papua New Guinea soldiers were being trained to fight in Bougainville. So massive protests down there against uh, that. Uh, protests outside the de- defence headquarters in Sydney, protests outside the Papua New Guinea consulate. I took a trip to London, met other activists there, and we did a massive protest at the Rio Tinto headquarters in London where we had red paint in milkshake containers, like empty milkshake containers, and the red paint, you know, so it was all concealed. (laughs) We charged into the Rio Tinto headquarters and threw our paint everywhere, symbolising the blood of the Bougainville people. Yeah, it looked like, you know, a war zone after we'd finished. (laughs) Sadly, but also good. Two people were arrested, um, a guy and a girl were arrested there, but the charges were dropped and... I think they dropped the charges, Rio Tinto dropped the charges or the police dropped the charges because Rio Tinto said to because they didn't want it to get onto the news. Like uh, silence is golden, you know, media blackout. Like we had a real task on our shoulders to get Bougainville on the, you know, on the agenda or on the stage so people knew what was happening on Bougainville. So 
I don't think a lot of people even knew that there was a war on the, happening. I didn't until I met Moses in 1993. But it was our taxes that were paying for the war. We were training the Papua New Guinea Defence Force. Our helicopters were used to strike villages. You know, ammunition, mortar bombs. You know, Australia was implicated in that war in Bougainville. All because of that Rio Tinto and Bougainville Copper Limited and the Panguna Mine. Were you getting this information through Moses and his contacts on Bougainville? Yes, so I was um, Moses' backup. So Moses would get uh, from our source, who um, firstly was Martin Miriori, who was um, in the Solomon Islands, Honiara, in the Solomon Islands. And so Martin was our key source of information. I think it was 1995 or 1996, no, it must have been 1996, um, Martin's house, which was also, you know, at the side of it had all this stuff that we'd been donating, like school books, medicines, like humanitarian aid, was all being stacked up at Martin's place in Honiara in the Solomon Islands to be then transported from there, you know, by sea up to uh, Giza, the other end of the Solomon Islands, and then from Giza to Bougainville by boat, which was a massive task, like going through the blockade, where people got shot at and killed and terrible. Anyway, so going back to your question, so Martin Miriori was the first working with Moses very closely and and being with the Bougainville Freeman, I was the one then taking those faxes and sending them out to Australian media by fax in those days. And, and most of those media statements that were coming out were keeping a track of how many people had been killed by the Papua New Guinea Defence Forces, what was happening on Bougainville. So it was very heartbreaking. It was so, you know, I've cried many tears over the years with what I've, you know, well, dealt with, you know, helping Moses and Marilyn and the people of Bougainville. Very moving. It's been, you know, extremely heartfelt. Are you saying that Martin actually got over to Bougainville? When he was getting this information, was he actually, did he actually get into Bougainville or was he getting messages sent through someone else? No, we had it through um, radio contact and so it was coming by. So Martin was writing all the, informa- all the information up and then sending it to Moses and then Moses would send it to me and on behalf of the Bougainville Freedom Movement, I would send it out to media in Australia and internationally. So in those days, too, the faxing was expensive. You know, I was working full-time, and so I didn't mind using, you know, we were running on the smell of an oily rag. We did have fundraisers and dinners and raffles and things like that. But, you know, I was thankful that I, I was working full-time, so I could use my money to help with the cause. You know, I have no regrets. So Martin was getting all this stuff via the radio. So when Martin's house was firebombed, I mean, they were lucky to get out. Everything was gone. Everything that we had sent over, like that we'd um, trying to help the people of Bougainville, was now up in smoke. It'd gone. Martin's lost his house. All the things that were donated that was, you know, shipped over uh, were gone, burnt to the ground. It was a job. Someone deliberately firebombed that house and it was someone obviously from the PNG government or had to do with the PNG government because 
they were trying to keep Bougainville quiet, just like Australia was. Paul Martin, his wife Scully and the family were exiled to the Netherlands. So we lost the contact. They were over in the Netherlands now, but they're safe. What basically happened after that, our dear friend, who's another dear person who's passed away, Bishop Zale, who was in Giza, which is the northern end of the Solomon Islands, so closer to Bougainville, became the contact. So the step in for Martin, shall we say. Then it was Bishop Zale was taking all the notes you know, via the radio. We had to get a fax machine to Bishop Zale. So, you know, we were, we were working hard on getting all this stuff happening. You know, I had numerous phone calls also with Bishop Zale, lovely, lovely man, and his beautiful wife, Daphne, has also passed away. Time's moving on, and all these key people, I mean, we're all going to go one day, admittedly, but so sad that these key people who worked so hard for Bougainville haven't lived to see Bougainville finally get her independence. Now, I imagine that you're sending all these faxes to the media outlets in Australia. Were any of them picking up on it? The left were definitely picking up on it. Like, the mainstream was very difficult. Free Left Weekly, The Guardian from the Communist Party of Australia were very good. Mainstream media was very slow. I think where there was a turning point with the media, and, and it took a long time. I mean, there were little snippets that would come out now and again, but I think where we really started to see a turn was when, sadly, in Bougainville, there was another terrible massacre where a congregation of people in a little church, in a little chapel in Bougainville, were slaughtered, were gunned down. By that stage, we'd finally got some cameras, uh, you know, to take photos because that's where we felt that we were lacking. We, we, we needed the evidence, like we had it all via Martin. We had it all via Bishop Zale, but we needed, like, hard evidence. Sadly, this church was firebombed and... There were photos from the cameras that were sent over. I can't think what year that was. That might have been 1996. And so that was terribly sad. It was those kids involved, you know, it was so, so heartbreaking. So having the photos, that's where we started. Like there was a, a story on SBS TV, ABC, the Sydney Morning Herald. You know, I'd have to look back through my files, but that was massive massive that we finally had some proof so i think that's where the turning point happened that's really sad to say isn't it when did marilyn get there to start writing her human rights reports again that was um through tracking down every fax and 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 taking down you know her notes on an excel spreadsheet and then when she went there i think the Burnham Talks happened in 1997. That was in New Zealand. That was a peace talks. That's when the mercenaries were stopped. Sandline International Mercenaries were stopped in the March of 1997 in Port Moresby. And then in the July, uh, Marilyn and Moses and other Bougainvillians attended the Burnham Talks, the Burnham Peace Talks. It wasn't long after that that Marilyn got the chance and Moses got the chance to go to Bougainville and Marilyn followed up a lot of the um, information, the data that she collected. Some horrific stories came oh, out of that's that. that's awful. Just awful. Again, just heartbreaking. It's so, it was so depressing. I don't know how we've kept on going, truly. It's just been horrendous.
absolutely horrendous. And that war touched every family on Bougainville. Is that correct? Absolutely. It went from, it, it, you know, it, it all started at the Panguna Mine, um, which is central Bougainville, but the Papua New Guinea Defence Force made their, their major base in Booker, which was the north end of Bougainville, full-on war. I mean, it's estimated that 20,000 people lost their lives. We had a blockade that stopped by air, by sea, on the land where no one could move. No human rights, you know, activists in, no journalists in. Everyone was stopped. It, it, it has taken a lot to get this story out. People have risked their lives to go to Bougainville through the blockade. It's just been enormous task, enormous. And we have to emphasise the role of the Australian government. Absolutely. The Australian government um, are complicit in the war on Bougainville. Uh, that war went from 1988 right through until 1998. So that's a 10-year, decade-long war. Uh, Australia was, again, supplying helicopters that was turned into gunships that were strafing the village, pe- the people in villages on Bougainville. We had um, Australia training the Papua New Guinea Defence Forces, giving them their uniforms, their boots, their ammunition, their guns. We had Australian Navy ships you know, run by the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, blockading the island. It was horrendous. Australia is definitely complicit in the Bougainville War. And it was all because of the Panguna Copper Mine. We'll bring forward to the end of the peace talks. Were they a compromise or were they satisfactory to the Bougainville people? It was 2001, I think, from memory, when the, uh, when it was the peace agreement was signed. I think by that stage, Bougainville knew they'd won the war, but now it was like to establish a peace process had to involve Papua New Guinea and did involve Australia. The peace has held, but I mean, it's been a long and drawn out process where Bougainville wants its independence. We had a change of government, in, you know, in um, 2020 where a former Bougainville Revolutionary Army person, Ishmael Tororama, is now the current Prime Minister. Now, he's of Bougainville, and he's been pushing for independence. He's doing his utmost to get independence. That was what the war was all about, our independence, Bougainville's independence. So he's doing everything he possibly can. But at the moment, I'm a bit worried in the sense that he did a deal in February with five local landowning clans to reopen the Panguna, the defunct mine. Now, in his words, he, he's saying that that uh, you know, resolution that was signed in February brings the beginning of a new chapter, a chapter to realise Bougainville's independence. So he's sort of counting on the Panguna mine to get Bougainville economically viable so it can have its independence. What about the rest of the people of Bougainville? What are they saying or thinking? A lot of things right now, to me, seem like they're being done in secret, so I'm not picking up a lot of this stuff. I was absolutely flabbergasted when, I, when I, that news came out, you know, it, when you know, that public statement came out in February to say that the you know, five landowner groups from Panguna and the chiefs had you know, said, yeah, yeah, let's open the copper mine, Panguna. I was flabbergasted. I was shocked. I was angry. I just couldn't believe it. And this was after a three-day summit 
And I thought, that mine has been shut since 1988. We're now up to the year 2022. And it took a three-day summit to say, yeah, let's open the mine. I'm still flabbergasted. The other thing is, too, there's definitely a divide and, and conquer situation happening because it was five Panguna landowner clans that signed, yes, yes, let's open the mine. From my understanding, there are nine clans. So four of those clans have been excluded or not invited or whatever, for whatever reason, they weren't even included in that process of signing that let's open the Panguna mine. There's been significant opposition for years never to open the mine, the return of foreign mining, you know, the pollution that's still happening with the mine waste even since the mine was shut, the brutality of the war, the trauma, you know. There's so many things post-war, like the post-war recovery. And on on top of that, the massive cost of reconstructing the mine made to be a billion dollars. Now, who's going to pay for that? It has to be a foreign investor. Rosenville can't do it. Just following up on that, the compensation for the people for loss of lives and livelihoods and actually trying to restore the damage that's been caused by that mine, not just to the people in the area, but downstream where people's lives have been destroyed. Yes, exactly. Like So it goes, the pollution is still happening from the defunct mine. So from the mine pit up in the Crown Ranges, the mountain range, right down the Jabba River, the Karawong Rivers, right down to the sea. Polluted water from the mine, and it just goes unabated into the rivers, chemical contamination of the river, the vast amounts of, you know, the tailings, the waste that's been dumped in the rivers, then heavy rainfall, the sand which is being washed into the rivers, causing major flooding, polluted mud, displacing villages, contaminating the water sources, destroying new areas of forest and agricultural land. You know, it just goes on and on and on. Thank goodness, Rights Law Centre in Melbourne are helping the Bougainville people um, address this with Rio Tinto, who walked away from Bougainville in 2016. Rio Tinto has said that you know, the, the assessment will be done and funded by Rio Tinto. Bougainville Copper Limited, you know, are going to contribute with the whatever has to be, you know, done. I don't know how they're going to contribute. They're the ones who want to reopen the mine, really. And then I also read somewhere that, you know, there's a currently a tender process being conducted to select a suitably qualified contractor to undertake any, uh, you know, necessary work on the assessment of the damage which is expected to commence in mid-2022 and take 18 months. We're sort of still a long way off, you know, Rio Tinto coming up with any dollars or Bougainville Copper Limited coming up with any compensation or rectification of the damage that they've left. When you look at Rio Tinto's record in other countries where they've been mining, it doesn't fill people with a lot of joy, does it, that they'll do the right thing for the people of Bougainville? No, I don't have any faith in Rio Tinto. I don't have any faith at all. I know what they've done in Bougainville. And I'm very aware, you know, thanks, you know, to particularly to people from the mining, the London Mining Network that I'm connected with and have met who've covered, you know, the, the devastation Rio Tinto's caused in many countries, including our own. Most recently, the 
disposing of the Ducan Gorge in the Pilbara of Western Australia, where they just decimated our First Nations people's sacred site, which archaeologists had discovered doing their best to, you know, have it protected as well. But Rio Tinto just went in there and blew the whole lot up. It's just unfathomable how they can get away with it. Moving into mid-2022, where do you see your role now? I think I'm still keeping an eye on Rio Tinto and definitely keeping my eye on Bougainville Copper Limited. I'm noticing massive contradiction from what Bougainville is saying compared to what the current autonomous Bougainville government is saying about mining. I'm concerned for the people of Bougainville knowing how, what the dirty tricks are with Bougainville Copper Limited and Rio Tinto. The Bougainvillians landowners, the five clans, met again in May, 4th of May, only a couple of weeks ago, and have definitely said that they do want to go ahead for sure to open the mine, in the Panguna mine, to reopen it. They've also agreed you know, that the Bougainville government, with the landowners, that they will jointly establish a completely new local Bougainville entity to develop the Panguna mine and not an existing entity that has had a history with the Panguna mine. Now, I don't know how they're going to do that. And, you know, apparently this new entity, the new local entity, once it's established, it'll be owned by the Panguna mine landowners and the Bougainville government on behalf of the Bougainville people. I don't know how they're going to do this, Jan. I don't. Particularly when I read that the... Bougainville Copper Limited held their annual general meeting on the 5th of May in Port Moresby and it looks like, you know, the company continues to be positive and, you know, and collaborative relationships with landowners from Panguna, you know, these they greatly value these relationships. In November 21, they've appointed two new Bougainville Copper Limited uh, local directors from Bougainville. More Bougainville faces on the Bougainville Copper Limited Board. They're aware of the, you know, the historic referendum back in 2019 where 97.7% of the people of Bougainville voted for independence, but they also say that the Bougainville government and the PNG government have agreed to formal, formalise a political outcome no earlier than 2025 and no later than 2027. And this will need to be ratified by the rest of the company was that the Bougainville government facilitated a three day summit in February involving five clans of the Bougainville area, which resulted in the joint resolution to work cooperatively with the government of Bougainville towards the mines reopening. Now, now they're, you know, they're so excited about this. They're saying this is a significant development and demonstrates that the landowners and the government are unified in agreeing to work together to facilitate the reopening. The last piece of his chairman's statement from BCL, they say, Bougainville Copper has consolidated its position as a local Bougainville and PNG company in which the people and government of Bougainville have a valuable stake. We therefore believe the case for the company's involvement in the redevelopment of Panguna will only strengthen over the year ahead. Final comments? All I can do is keep my heart for Bougainville, 
keep an eye, I try and keep an eye on things. As I said earlier, there's been a lot of secretive meetings going on that I wasn't aware of uh, with the landowners. I can do is try and keep my head above water, keep an eye on things and keep pushing Bougainville's independence. And hopefully that will happen before 2025. The other aspect, again, I forgot to mention, there's a big, the big elections happening for Papua New Guinea in July. It was postponed. It was supposed to happen in May or June, but it's been postponed. You know, again, things might change for Bougainville depending on which government of Papua New Guinea are elected. So that's another thing to keep an eye on. Well, you've stuck through it through thick and thin, haven't you? Yeah, I have. You know, I, I have no regrets whatsoever, Jan. You know, very heartfelt activism. And I do care for the people of Bougainville. And I do really hope that they get their independence very soon. Vicky John, activist extraordinaire. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NES sends aid, raises awareness and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NES is a 3CR supporter. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. So much to talk about, so many issues and areas of concern as the Morrison government melts into history. Just a couple today, but we can't go past the rise of independence at the May elections. It's been happening over a number of recent elections, beginning with Cathy McGower in Indi, but nothing like the last one. I spoke with writer and academic Benoit Kampmark, and we began with the independence. Binoy, in your article titled The Great Teal Tsunami, your closing paragraph read, While the bruised LNP will lick their wounds and rue their ignorance of the community movement that gathered pace under their noses, Australia's major parties will have to consider a new phenomenon, the non-career parliamentarian, one who enters parliament not for party allegiance and factions, but for voter representation and change. For the Westminster model of government, this is indeed a stunning novelty. The existence of smaller parties and independents and so forth, and so what is so interesting about the elections just passed is that 
it's demonstrated that it is actually possible and you know within a certain context to see the emergence of a movement of independence which is very interesting but of course this this has been in motion for some time the emergence of the movement in Indi of course in 2013 and then the development of the voice off movement has really gained momentum and uh, it threatened to do something in 2019 but then again there was this of course uh, surprise victory with Scott Morrison, and so we tended to see the issue of estrangement, especially within the blue ribbon seats uh, of the Liberal Party, this idea that the Liberals would start to take climate change seriously, would start looking at matters of integrity in government and corruption and so on seriously. But of course, it took a Morrison government to really anger these individuals who, in many ways, in a a previous iteration, uh, would have been moderate Liberal Party supporters of a different era, but these individuals, as I said, felt alienated and have voted with their feet and are causing this movement uh, of such significance, which will make it very interesting for the Liberals as to how they position themselves for the future elections. And on top of that, the highest Greens vote ever, particularly in the North. Yes, that's a very important point, and I think what's fascinating is that the Greens ran, uh, in some ways, their platforms or parts of their platforms were rather similar to, say, the Teal platforms in Sydney and in Melbourne. So they weren't uh, Teals running in the southeast corner uh, of Queensland. There weren't any running in Brisbane, but in a sense, they didn't need to because the Greens had been campaigning there for a long time to build this momentum. Some people were surprised. Uh, how well they did uh, in this election. But what is interesting, the Greens management uh, team in in Brisbane, the seat of Brisbane, for example, and the seats of Griffith and Ryan, they've been actually working very hard for some years now to develop a local base where they could capitalize. And of course, with the talk about climate change and with the awful floods, the Greens were there to also uh, make their presence felt whilst uh, the coalition government was nowhere to be seen. So this was a very influential, yeah, very influential, a remarkable campaign, a very, a very important campaign based on visibility, door knocking, um, local activism and community organization again. So there are lots of similarities between their approach and also the community based organization of the Teals um, in, um, in, in uh, Melbourne and Sydney. Do you believe those two groups will be able to work together? Oh, I I do see on many points, absolutely. And we have to understand, too, of course, there will be divergences. You know, we have to accept the fact that there may be elements of disagreement in terms of certain, be it uh, environmental policy with targets. uh, The Greens may want to pursue a target that may be different to the Teals. But I think on that, generally speaking, though, environmentally, they'll be more or less on the same page. Uh, What will be interesting will be, you know, on issues to do with policy on businesses and uh, you know, matters, say, with corporate tax or matters concerning, uh, you know, corporations. That'll be very interesting to see how they work with those topics. But certainly on many issues, they're very much um, in accord with each other. The, uh, the need to establish, of course, uh, anti-corruption commission, the need to, you know, restore public integrity in the system, root out corruption, and, of course, uh, obviously, you know, the climate change issues. These are all very central to the platform. Yeah, when you put all those things together, you realise that the Liberal Party or the, the, the coalition, they didn't take responsibility for much, did they? 
No, it's what was striking about the Morrison government was that it seemed to be experts in not taking responsibility. It actually seemed to become very much a motif, and, and whatever it claims to have done, so I know Morrison, you know, as all as he tended to do, would like to claim credit for things such as uh, the the Australian pandemic success story, you know, in terms of coping with COVID. But of course, the fact that the states that took and did all the, the grunt work and heavy lifting when it came to dealing with the, the matters of how one copes with COVID, it was all the Commonwealth really needed to do uh, was to turn off the tap in terms of closing borders, but then, and you know, and order vaccines, which it did so very badly and very poorly. So when it came to certain key areas, either the Morrison government was not to be seen, not to be heard, or was actually very much in opposition, you know, things like, you know, what do we do about uh, net neutral targets with emissions? You know, should Australia have a, even a target in mind when going to the Glasgow conference climate, so a conference on climate? So all of these things demonstrated a, a very haphazard and distant approach to the making of policy. We just come back to bite very severely. And of course, the Labour Party can't rest on its laurels. No, not at all. Um, I think we have to remember the, the key issue, or one of the key factors of the, of the election, is that the primary vote fell for both parties. So the major parties, the primary vote fell. Um, you know, a third of Australians essentially voted, you know, and their primary preferences directed towards non-liberal, non-Labour, and, and non-national. So that, in many ways, that was actually very interesting. It also shows that uh, people are diversifying the way they vote, and they also want to see a more reflective parliament, because I think it's, it's certainly one of the more diverse parliaments one, one has seen. And it also suggests that people want parliamentarians to actually work together and make policy. And so it's, it's very, from a, from a political perspective, it's quite heartening to see, to not see something majority. So Labour will have, notwithstanding Labour now has a majority, you know, they certainly will have to work very closely with other political groups and you know, with the Teals, with the crossbench and broadly speaking. One legacy of the Morrison government I'd like you to talk about is the stacking of the, the bodies, and it's across the border. How difficult would it be to bring some semblance of balance back in those bodies? Yes, it's a, I know it was one of the platforms of the Albanese opposition to try to restore balance to, for example, organisations uh, and bodies such as the Australian Administrative Tribunal, but of course the problem is with appointees to these positions, they do have their tenure to run, and unless they have very good reasons, you can't really get rid of them. And, and there's no, you know, unless these particular individuals, for example, be it um, in disability or be it in, in a human rights commission and so on, you can't really tell them, you know, give them marching orders unless they've actually done something inappropriate or contrary to their position's uh, mandate. But but the thing to be careful, of course, is to, yes, is, is to try to find balance and you know, to keep uh, appointments transparent, uh, open them for, of course, uh, proper nominations and have candidates rather than the, the practice which the Morrison government loved doing, which was to simply slot people in without scrutiny. I don't think many people living on, a, on the so-called living wage now would, would have any idea just how much the, the heads of these bodies are being paid. Yes, that's right. They would not. And I think that's very true. Uh, it's, it's quite staggering, actually, the amount that's paid to some of these individuals. Um, 
you know, be it the the, A, uh, the AAT or, or be it, say, the Fair Work Commission itself. You're quite right. So, and, and the sad irony is, is that the Fair Work Commission, of course, is a crucial body in determining the wage you know, in the first place, and, and they, of course, have individuals who are distinctly not on that sort of wage either. So, um, yeah, Labour has its hands full, um, you know, and, and it's work cut out in terms of trying to address what is essentially a broad politicization of the process. You know, the sad thing about you know, this legacy is that uh, it was already in play. It has been in play for some years now, but uh, under the Morrison government, it, it just really galloped away. So the whole process has been compromised somewhat. Two issues that I, I and many Australians want the ALP to act on as promised. First is, as some courage, as Stuart Rees would say, to demand that the U.S. drop the charges against Julian Assange. Yes, it's a very, uh, not not just a very just thing to do, but a very sensible thing to do. The the, the pursuit of uh, Assange uh, has been um, appalling, atrocious, and on various levels very sinister. The Australian role in this has generally been distant. Again, one of those positions taken, in, you know, of taking a back seat whilst uh, the superpower. Uh, seeks its quarry. The and uh, the thing with the Labour approach, and that will, what will be interesting to see is how far this actually goes in, in practice. Because I know um, Albanese did have a, a number of lunches with uh, Julian Assange's uh, father, John Shipton. Shipton sim- simply has said he feels quite confident this, that um, Albanese would do something. But we just have to remember that the the Labour caucus does have some views on this. There are individuals in the Labour Party that, um, that are part of this cross-bench bench group that are demanding Assange's release, uh, return, and so forth. Uh, but it still remains by no means a universal position. And it'll be, you know, um, Albanese did say that he doesn't want to use a, a loudspeaker or a hailer and this sort of thing. Uh, so there may be a lot of things uh, about this, but you know, we have to see what, how this manifests. Let, you know, let's not forget that it was actually a Labour government that initially expressed its uh, view that Assange had broken rules in exposing, uh, you know, in publishing the Cablegate State Department files. It was actually uh, Julia Gillard initially said that it was a crime. This was actually what Julia Gillard said, Prime Minister Gillard. Uh, but then an investigation by the Australian Federal Police into whether any laws had been broken revealed that there hadn't been any laws broken in this context. So one, one has to sort of see how Labour contends with it. And like with many issues, Labour has its factions. It has its, its, its strong pro-security faction who would not want to see Assange you know, being given you know, a light way out. Uh, and then you are, there are those also on the left faction who would like to see him released. So as usual, Labour has to contend with its own uh, particular disagreements <laughs> within the body. And I'm sure there are the same disagreements on the issue of Palestine, but there were promises on that one too. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, we also have the same story, factional approaches and disagreements as to how the issue of both Israel's treatment of um, Palestine itself, but also uh, the, the state solution matter. The, these things have, have come out, of course, with debate. Last year, there was a there was a fear in some circles, and it was expressed, uh, given a lot of media coverage, that uh, Labour had somehow adopted a, a different stance. But the official stance is they will work 
on the assumption that Palestinian statehood is the goal, but they're not going to be impetuous about uh, you know, declaring it independently. They're going to work through the process, um, of course, recognizing Israel's security needs and its own right to exist. So in, in doing that, I do see a fairly conservative approach to that. I don't, uh, it's not going to be perhaps as uh, you know, openly pro-U.S. in the stance taken there. The United States under Trump, of course, uh, did ignore elements of international law in actually recognizing, for example, the capital in Jerusalem, you know, and also more or less giving a green light to the Israeli policy to expand in the West Bank, you know, settlements in the West Bank. What will be interesting will be what Albanese's position is when it comes to such very crucial matters, which are so controversial, of course, in the context of this policy. Well, just finally, it's not going to be a boring period ahead for politics in Australia, is it? No, no, it's, uh, I think for anyone who's, uh, you know, for political watcher, political vulture, junkie, or whatever you want to call, then it's a certainly very exciting times, but it's also not, not even just for people interested in politics. I think for the, for the first time in a very long time, there is a real sense that things can be done in a consultative and in a consultative level, in a basis. And that makes it very interesting. There's a sense that with the diversity constituted now, there is a chance to actually make something that was simply, and has not been done for years, which is make genuine policy. And that's something we can only look forward to. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jen. And Benoit Kampmark is one of many writers who contribute to Pearls and Irritation online journal. Do have a look. The fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes the fears, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white fear to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. Stuart Rees is a regular on Tuesday Home Time, commenting on a number of issues, particularly human rights and the lack thereof and peace. He is Emeritus Professor from University of Sydney, worked with the Sydney Peace Foundation, the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies, and the Sydney Peace Prize. 
as well as many other areas at the university. But today we look back on the long career of Stuart. And here he talks about home as a child in England. Stuart, you were born just as World War II was beginning. Where was home? Do you have memories of of those war years as a young child? Very clearly, because we lived outside Portsmouth, which was the British naval headquarters that was heavily bombed by the Luftwaffe. I think the first four years of our lives, or a bit more maybe, we slept in in an air raid shelter. And certainly from the age of about three or four, with my brother among potatoes and onions and beetroot, because that's all the vegetables were stored in the air raid shelter. There was a huge bomb crater outside our home. Uh, there was an anti-aircraft gun on a patch of grass just outside where we lived. Our father was a musician and been a bit of a pianist, was away in the war. He had his hands blown off in the, in the Java Strait, I think, fighting the Japanese. Memories of, um, of those early years are pretty vivid. I was wondering how war was explained to you as a young child. Well, I suppose it was partly partly danger and partly excitement. I mean, when the V2 rockets came over, they were known as doodlebugs. We could, we were told as soon as we heard them, we, we had to rush into the air raid shelter. And then when my mother obtained news that her husband, our father, had his, was badly injured and it was going to take a year to, to get him back to Britain, I think he spent about three months in a tent hospital in Egypt or something like that. From Kit's point of view, it was danger and excitement, but then the excitement was when all the troops massed ready for for the D-Day invasions in the streets around our home. We took vegetables and fruit to them as as little as four-year-olds or uh, something like that, and we made friends with young soldiers in tanks who on D-Day rolled away, never to be seen again. Whether that experience had impact on you later in life where you pursued peace for so long? I think the resolve of our mother to take us to see our, our father in hospital, because he was in, a, in and out of hospital for five years, that kind of stamina, resolve, and the obsession The absurdity of war was apparent in the most awful injuries that all these guys who were... My father was in an experimental plastic surgery hospital, which included lots of Battle of Britain pilots with half their faces blown away. The absurdity of war, that came through pretty clearly. But but there were other influences, in particular one, one newspaper and one famous journalists who wrote for it in in later years. I think that was influential. Okay, I'll come back to that later. Being virtually uh, brought up by a single mother, how did you get to university? Did they have free education in those days? Yeah, sure. Well, with university, our family never heard it, didn't didn't know what that was. But you had to pass what was called the 11 plus, and every British kid took that exam at the age of 11, 15% passed and went to so-called grammar schools, lucky enough to pass. And, and then when I, the kind of school I went to, which was six days a week, and Sunday was the only day you did not go to school because they were highly motivated to 
encourage their students to go to university. That was pretty significant. You're meant to be good at three things. One was sport, the other one was music, and the third one was academic studies. And you worked on those three? Yeah, I worked on all three. I'm not sure that I was... I mean, I did, in other words, I did well enough to get a scholarship to go to university. And when you went to university, everybody was paid to go to university. If you went to, if you got a place, that meant you went there for free. Nobody worked. Everybody expected to be full time in the university. You lived, you stayed there, you, you worked and you played for the three or four years of that first degree. And what was that first degree? I did, um, politics and history, so government and history was it was called then. And then when I finished, I had to think, well, what could I do with it? Mind you, there was a tradition that it didn't follow that the degree you studied necessarily would, led to particular specific employment. I was as much interested in this, fun, this phenomenon called justice as I was in peace. So I was interested in the court system, I knew that, I mean, there was an assumption in Britain at that time, if you did not go to Oxford or Cambridge, you wouldn't get into law, you wouldn't get into the corporate world, etc. I then got a scholarship from the, the British Home Office to do postgraduate work to enter the, what they called the probation service, basically working for the British government. Did you have mentors during your university degrees? Yes, I mean, there were some brilliant teachers, but my mentors really were uh, several friends who played who played in the rugby team, and they were mentors because they were not only bright but they were they had a lot of stamina, they knew about solidarity and loyalty, a sense of togetherness and a sense of a great sense of fun. so I think those were those were greater influences at least as an undergraduate. As a postgraduate, yeah, some of the people, because you had to do a lot of practical work in the two years postgraduate studies. But I suppose if I had any one mentor, it was directly and indirectly the most influential academic in Britain at that time, Professor Richard Titmus from the London School of Economics. He never had, a, he certainly never had a PhD. I'm not even sure that he ever gained a degree. But he was the most influential architect of economic and social policy in post-war Britain and in post-war Europe. I think he's still influential in my life, even though he's, he died many years ago. Where did that first job take you? I mean, I eventually became a probation officer in North London. I worked there for nearly, all, for nearly four years in the courts, mostly magistrates' courts, but also at the Central Criminal Court in London, the old, what we know as the Old Bailey. And in those days, every person who pleaded guilty had to be the subject of what, was, what were called social inquiry reports. In other words, my job was to interview all the, the guilty defendants and then advise the, the judge or the magistrate as to what the, um, what the sentence should be. Usually our, our responsibility was to support under under probation orders, legal orders of the court, people who otherwise would have been fined or otherwise sent to prison. What do you believe you learnt about the justice system or the legal system of those years? 
I think two things in particular. One is that too many of the courts, there was no justice. There was the practice of law, but there wasn't a lot of justice. And secondly, that necessity is the mother of invention. We, had, we didn't really have any resources to support people who were poor and vulnerable, had been convicted of offenses and who needed a second chance. And we had to simply roll up our sleeves and create resources where none existed. I mean, to give you an example, I, would, I might meet somebody who'd just done 10 years in prison and I would be told on a Friday, Friday lunchtime that this person was coming out of Wormwood Scrubs or Brixton Prison and would I take responsibility for that person? So immediately, within a few hours, I had to find them somewhere to live. By the Monday morning of the following weekend, I'd have to be meeting with them with a view to finding them employment and supporting them in other ways. So, you know, I always get a bit, um, when people say, I'd help you, but we don't have any resources, I, my response is, well, I've, I've never had any resources. If you mean financial patronage, we, we never had that. Where did you go after that? Well, after that, I uh, wanted a bit of adventure. I was, mind you, I'd, I'd married a young Norwegian, so both of us were ready for adventure. You remember the 1960s was, before I did that, I should mention that I'd spent nearly three months in the Soviet Union as a student during the Cold War. So I was already, as it were, taking risks. You know, I was always kind of curious. And my mother thought I was going to be a communist and never come back from Moscow. So I'd already had that, I suppose, a kind of risk-taking characteristic. But after the four years in, in London, I uh, was employed by the Attorney General in British Columbia out of Vancouver. So we took the last of the Cunard liners out of Southampton Water, sailed across the Atlantic up the St. Lawrence, and then took a train for three days across Canada and finished up in Vancouver. So I then had more court experience, more experience of working in prisons, more experience of working with, um, particularly there with indigenous groups, mostly Indian people, but, but, but their circumstances hardly any different from Australian indigenous people. But the system in Canada is similar to that in Britain? Yes, I mean, they were, the British traditions were, were pretty much the same, but the details of law were different. So although I was pretty experienced in working in probation and parole, I had to do a short course at the University of British Columbia on the legal features of justice in, in Canada. There were a few other things, like the di complete difference between working in a big city and working in remote parts of Canada. So, for example, after several months in, in Vancouver, which is a big sophisticated city I left to go and work like 500 miles away in the interior there I had to do mental health social security probation parole everything you didn't have the resources that you had in a, that you had in a in a big city just to go back to the Soviet Union for a moment was three months enough to make any impression on you in any way only I mean it was being run by Bulganin and Khrushchev at that time. I remember that um, when I was there, 
Khrushchev declared that jiving was no longer illegal. You could jive in the in the in the dance floors with younger Moscovites. I was struck by the complete contrast between people's poverty and the amazing riches of the underground system. The underground system still looks like looks like a palace. There was this mismatch between people's poverty. There wasn't much to buy or see in the streets at that time. It hadn't been commercialized. And yet the underground, let alone when you went to Leningrad, as it was then, you saw the riches of the Winter Palace and, and so on. But I also remember a great sense of fun with young people there, rather suggesting that, um, you know, what we have more in common than we have differences. You are tuned to Tuesday Home Time on 3CR and listening to an interview with Professor Emeritus Stuart Grace. Well, back to North America, you, you ended up in California and Texas. How did you find the systems there compared to what you've well, been used to? I got a job there. After working for the Attorney General in British Columbia, I was becoming good at only two things. One was downhill skiing and the other was trout fishing. I thought there must be more to life than this and because the war on poverty and the civil rights movement was underway in America, I desperately wanted to get into the United States and be part of that or see what was going on there. And so, by chance, got a job in a new university opening up in southern Colorado. I mean, my, my time in California and Texas came much later after I'd got a PhD in, back in Scotland then eventually came to to Australia. So we had we'd already had a wonderful uh, three years in in Colorado that led me to believe that I probably needed a PhD in order to answer the question why didn't I have one? <laughs> <laughs> so in other words if you wanted to stay get a job in the university and stay in a university uh, in those days probably still now you you really needed to have a PhD, and I, at that time, I didn't have one. I hadn't done that. I mean, I got the employment because I had so much experience in courts and prisons in different, in two different countries. What was the reality of the war on poverty in the U.S. as you saw it? That's a great question. Well, it was about creating opportunity for people who previously did not have opportunity. It was um, what Lyndon Johnson called the Great Society Program. And we had programs called Upward Bound in which suddenly there was opportunity in universities for Afro-Americans and Hispanic students whose whose, um, families had never thought of going to a university. So there was much more of a mix. And it was incredibly ambitious and incredibly diverse. And I remember the architect of War on Poverty or the Great Society was John Kenneth Galbraith, the very famous diplomat ambassador. Years later, he came to Australia and to discuss the achievements of the War on Poverty. And I remember him saying we had a huge number of objectives and we passed a lot of laws, but we never thought too much about how to implement any of them. So there was that usual problem in policy circles of not paying enough attention to 
implementing them. But look, it was a time of great excitement, the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War, civil rights movement, great society, all those things were going on at the same time. Did you have to be careful, though, as an activist or not as an activist to make sure you kept your head down a bit so you wouldn't be maybe deported? I had, um, you know, secure employment in the university. I don't think I was as activist then as I've become subsequent. I mean, you, as you gain experience, you become better at or more effective at uh, protesting human rights. I was learning in those days. I wouldn't say I was upfront on anything, although I do remember campaigning for Bobby Kennedy for the presidency in 1968, it was. In fact, I attended the last meeting that he gave before he was, before he was murdered. I wouldn't have called myself an activist. I participated in opinion polling for him. I think he would have been successful if he had not been shot. Nevertheless, looking back on those years you spent in North America, what impact do you believe that they had on you, looking back? Two or three things. One is the enormous sense of energy and opportunity. Um, The sky seemed to be the limit. You know, this notion anybody could be president. So I did experience that. That was refreshing after Britain. Britain was more conservative, more cautious. The other thing was the enormous inequality in America. That stared you in the face. There was no universal health care. There was no effective universal welfare system. So there was a mismatch between enormous affluence and enormous poverty. And I suppose the third thing was the, was the violence associated with America. Although the gun slaughter that we're witnessing now wasn't, didn't seem to be as bad then. For me, what made all that tolerable was the great sense of generosity of people who were friends. There was a great sense of um, comradeship, particularly among the students. When I went back years later to teach at the University of California at Berkeley, I mean, I still have close friendships with students I taught in, God knows, 35 years ago, you know, and some of them have come and stayed in our home in Australia. So that friendship covered all the other experiences, the experiences of violence, the experiences of inequality, and the experience of of still this notion that there's almost anything you could do. You could put people on the moon, etc. When and why was the decision to come to Australia, and did you mean it to be a permanent place to live? Look, a lot of things happened by chance. By that time, I was back in working in Scotland at the University of Aberdeen, built about 1495, I think it was. A friend of mine teased me about an advertisement for the chair in social work and social policy at Sydney University. And he'd seen the advert in a newspaper over several tins of um, McEwen's Beth Lager one evening in the pub. He said, you can take the gold. I said, what do you mean by gold? He said, well, Look at this job. There's a lot of sand. There's a lot of sunshine. And there appears to be a a large salary. So I applied for that job and they flew me out for for the interviews along with, I think there were five of us on the shortlist. And I was easily the youngest. I suspect the university authorities thought I'd be the easiest one to 
because the place was in enormous conflict that, that I'd make it easy for the old professor. So <laughs> I got the job. What was the conflict? Well, the students in that department had been on strike for the previous six months, refusing to go to class, saying that the curriculum was irrelevant. Those of us who applied, there was somebody on the shortlist from America, another person from Britain, and at least one homegrown candidate. I don't think any of us knew that when we applied. It said Social Work and Social Policy, University of Sydney. Nobody said the place is in uproar. So, in a way, I flew into a, um, well, a department in considerable conflict, and the first thing I had to do was to sort it out. How difficult was that? Look, it looked compared to the war in Vietnam or compared to um, what was the civil war in Sri Lanka or the war in Ukraine, it really wasn't. It wasn't difficult. I mean, I've got, I'm ten times wiser now than I was then. It was really about knowing where your allies were. And the allies for me were the students. There were 600 students and only 25 staff. And the staff were split between what I would call the old guard, all of whom had tenure, and younger people, none of whom had tenure. Look, it took a certain amount of time to change things. The, the, the curriculum was certainly irrelevant when I came, so redesigning the curriculum. But learning where power lay in that university. University of Sydney was a pretty powerful institution because when you think about it, most of the judges and lawyers and doctors and all the other professionals in New South Wales, if not across Australia, had come almost disproportionately either from Sydney or from Melbourne. And you had to learn, you know, where power lay in a place like that. Well, over those years that you stayed at that university, and there were many, many years, there were a few conflicts, weren't there? Oh, yes, lots. I decided that when I stood for election to to the University Senate, the governing body of the university, in those days you could have three staff members, or two or three, I can't remember, I think it was... I think it was three, might have been two. Anyway, for several years running, I was elected as the staff's representative, as one of the staff's representatives on the governing body of the university. So I knew where the bodies lay. I had some idea where the money was. I was on the inside table of the governing body. I mean, the kind of people who were there when I first started, including Gough Whitlam and Peter Wilensky, is the the chair of the... um, the public service, subsequently Donald MacDonald, who was chair of the ABC, Dame Leone Kramer, who became the chancellor and chair of the ABC. So uh, I was um, sitting around the table. I wasn't banging on the... I mean, I've learned you, it's better to sit around the table than to be outside banging on the door. Could you do much as one person? As one person, you can't, but you certainly, you made allies. I mean... I became very cooperative with, close to, um, Dame Leone Kramer. She was appointed to the chair of the ABC by Malcolm Fraser. Most of the Labour Party and other people said she was to the, most feminists said she was to the right, that she wasn't really a woman. They said she was to the right of Genghis Khan. But professionally, I respected her, and I think professionally she respected me. We didn't have to have the same 
political ideology, but we were professionals in a, in a very, very significant public institution, namely the University of Sydney. You could do a great deal because, in a way, I, when I founded the, the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies and subsequently the Sydney Peace Foundation, that came partly because I had some influence and in beginning of beginning of large networks across the city and across the state by virtue of being, or partly by virtue of being on the Senate of the university. And those two organisations, were they unique to the Sydney University? Yeah, they were unique. I mean, the Sydney Peace Foundation is the only, I mean, it awards Australia's only international prize for peace, so it's totally unique. And there hasn't been anything vaguely like the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies, I don't think. We were the forerunners of peace. Well, there was one Centre for Peace Studies at the ANU, which I think Gareth Evans created, and then the Fraser government almost immediately abolished. So the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies, until it was closed about six years ago, was, was pretty unique. A battle to get them set up? It was quite a battle. I mean, if I look at the Kim Beasley was Minister for Defence, I think, when we created the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. And that was an interesting one because the university rejected the idea of a Centre for Peace Studies because it said peace wasn't sufficiently academic. When we added the word conflict to it, peace and conflict, they suddenly said, well, that's splendid. That We'll, we'll approve of that. The Peace Foundation... Again, that totally depended on careful negotiation with influential people. The first meeting in the city of Sydney to start the idea of a peace foundation was chaired by Kerry O'Brien, for example. I remember that Kerry Packer's lawyer was on the, on the board. In fact, I was about the only one who knew something about peace when we started. Over those years, though, your had great interests in conflicts overseas and trying to bring attention to what's happening in countries like Sri Lanka, Palestine, West Papua and much more. Sure, yeah. Well, partly because the, the students and staff, when we created the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies, had those particular interests, but also because when the Peace Foundation was created, it meant that I travelled a lot to um, interview the people to whom we had awarded the, um, the Peace Prize. But I'd already worked for a time in the Civil War in Sri Lanka with Save the Children, so I had good reason to uh, follow what was ha happening to the Tamils. I became absolutely absorbed with the predicament of the Palestinian people. West Papua, although I didn't go to West Papua, we funded a couple of young, brave young people to go and film the, the, uh, the genocide in Papua committed by the Kapatas, the Indonesian military. We had a network of three or four people involved in all, each of those projects that were run out of a particular building at Sydney Uni, although most of the time the university's authorities either didn't know or didn't care. And they didn't always like your choice of recipient, did they? As long as we chose consensus-like people, like Mary Robinson, the um, 
former president of Ireland who became the Commissioner for Human Rights, they, the university, on the basis of snobbery, just clapped and got a bit of prestige out of it. But when we chose the Palestinian in 2003, then all hell was let loose. And the university basically was scared of a certain lobby and ran for cover. I really was put in the position of telling them that we weren't going to give way on issues surrounding the Palestinians. You got a gong in 2005. What was that for? The terms of reference said for service to international relations. It was mostly to do with my creation of the Sydney Peace Foundation because I suppose these were my ideas, that one, whereas the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies several years earlier was there were three or four of us involved. The Peace Foundation gave me the opportunity to travel, you know, into different countries, examining, evaluating, trying to deal with human rights abuses. You mentioned right at the beginning about a journalist who had a big influence on you. Who was that? His name was James Cameron. He was political correspondent for a newspaper called the News Chronicle, which was a very liberal, left-leaning liberal paper, I think sponsored by the Cadbury family, was of Quaker influence. He was distinguished because he was just about the first journalist ever to go to North Vietnam to report on the um, experimental explosions of the atomic bombs different parts of the world. I think his wife was from the Indian subcontinent. He was challenging people's racism long before it became a huge political issue. Pretty distinguished correspondent. He was a bit like the late Alan Ramsey of the Sydney Morning Herald. He took no prisoners. Yes, so you have always been a prolific writer, books, journals, poetry. Sure. What do you focus on? Yeah. Well, the poetry, in a way, is... I mean, I can't escape the poetry because it's, you know, for a lot of people, and probably for you too, Janice, it's a safety valve just when you you can't make sense of things. Something poetic comes to mind because you can find figures of speech to express what you really feel, and it's um, it's better than taking another aspirin. The poetry is important, but, you know, I feel compelled to write. I mean, some, and of course, nowadays, people ring me up and ask me. So today's article in the Pearls and Irritations about asking Albanese to intervene on behalf of Julian Assange came from two lovely women who run run a local newspaper here who rang me up and said, for God's sake, Stuart, can you please write something about getting Albanese to help to free Julian Assange? So, and because the, the older you get, the more, I mean, writing is an art form. It's now a lot easier for me to write than it was 50 years ago. I can put the ideas straight on paper and it doesn't take me too much time. You were half full glass or a half empty glass? It's only half full. I mean, there's so much to do. There's so much to write about. Take, for example, at the moment, I'm trying to establish a tribunal on the war in Ukraine because I think most people don't really know what's happening. They only have this sort of mainstream media version of events. Yeah, there's a sense of urgency, and as long as I have the energy, then... um, important but it's also rewarding i mean there's something personally rewarding about it I suppose it's like 
cooking a good meal for friends. I mean, it's a form of creativity in that respect. Final words? Two issues. One is about courage in public life. Everybody needs to take the risk of saying what they stand for, what they believe in, and what they will want to be held accountable for. My experience of courage is that it actually promotes your health mentally and physically. I mean, and the second issue is about how I and others use, or how men in particular use authority. I'm not sure that I've always used it as kindly or as generously as I might have done. One's always learning about that, because if we're going to talk about equality between people, particularly between men and women, the issue of the way men in power or in uniform or whatever use authority is a crucial issue to address. So those those two things I'll leave, leave you with. And perhaps, Anna Locke, I'll, I'll chuck in the third, which is about using the arts, great poetry, great music, great dance. That's how we have to elevate ourselves. And it's been great learning about the life and work of Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Free Palestine Melbourne is a community organisation dedicated to raising public awareness of Palestinians' 100-year struggle for freedom. To act in solidarity with the Palestinian people for peace and justice in Palestine and the right of self-determination and freedom. To work for justice and equality for all Palestinians in accordance with principles of international law and human rights including the right of return, to create space for a permanent Palestinian voice and foster increased awareness of the Palestinian struggle. One of those members who's been there since the early days is Melissa Yvonne. And when I spoke with Melissa late last week, I began by asking her when it was that the plight of Palestinians both at home and as refugees became an issue for her as an activist. It's a bit of a complicated question for me. I'm an international human rights lawyer. I've worked in many different places. I've worked in Timor-Leste in the UK, you know, in Australia, Palestine, issues that I've been aware of and known of for, look, as long as I can remember. But 
it became something that I became deeply passionate about about five years ago, six years ago, when I ended up in Palestine actually on a holiday randomly. Um, I had a, an opportunity to go there with a beautiful friend of mine and we travelled to the region and were able to travel into the West Bank and I don't know, it's a place that just gets you straight away. I mean, I will never forget the moment I first crossed into the West Bank. Um, I just had this feeling that I was going to live there. Um, and in the most unlikely of circumstances, I ended up meeting a Palestinian who became my husband, which for people that know me, that's the most unlikely of things to happen. And yet possibly the only thing that would have ever happened to me to stop me and settle me down. And I decided to take a risk and move to Palestine and live there. came to work for Badil who are based in Bethlehem, which is where I was living with him in a Dehesha refugee camp. Worked with Badil for a number of years, um, and Badil is one of Palestine's leading human rights organisations. And I still remain connected and, and, and I'm doing work for them now. I'd imagine it's difficult working for a human rights organisation if you're a Palestinian and it's a Palestinian organisation. I'm not Palestinian. I, I am Australian by birth. But it is an incredibly difficult thing to work for a Palestinian human rights organisation in general. The environment, and it's, it's currently a very big issue now, the shrinking space. Israel has always targeted the civic space in Palestine. It's evolved over the, the 70 years or so of the occupation and colonisation of, of Palestine. And right now we're in a state uh, where... Israel has, it's, it's got a two-pronged strategy for the way that it targets the civic space in Palestine. First of all, it goes after, and hopefully you won't mind if I speak in this in legal terms, being an international human rights lawyer, I've actually just written a piece on this. In, in international human rights law, the, the foundation of civic society is the right to freedom of expression and the right to freedom of association. Those two rights underpin what is necessary for a vibrant civic space. And there are necessary grey areas in the extent to which we have those, we possess those rights. On the one hand, as freedom of association, you have the right to associate with whoever you want to the extent that you're not engaged in criminal activities or one of the big areas is terrorism. So Israel very deliberately characterises Palestinian activism, Palestinian resistance, Palestinian actions in general as terrorist actions because it's trying to go at that grey area in that freedom of association it characterises Palestinian narratives as anti-Semitic, and that's going at the grey area that sits in the right to freedom of expression. You and I have the right to express ourselves to the extent that we want, provided it doesn't impede on someone else's right to be themselves and not be subjected to hate and bigotry and this sort of thing. So it's a very clear strategy that Israel has to target these two grey areas and demonise Palestinian civil society as, as terrorists which we saw happen last year when they declared six Palestinian NGOs as terrorist organisations, which is just absurd, and the way that Palestinian narratives get characterised as anti-Semitic. And in text, yes, it's incredibly hard to be a Palestinian NGO working in that space. And Badil particularly has always been the most progressive or the most advanced, I guess, and holistic in their narrative on their advocacy. Badil is a human, Palestinian human rights organisation set up to represent Palestinian refugee rights particularly, which means they have no option but to consider the Palestinian question as a holistic one. That is that the lands that were occupied in 48, we now know today as the West Bank and Gaza, 
you can't talk about what's happening there and what's happening for Palestinian refugees unless you talk of the whole of the space. And so Badil was one of the only organisations for a very long time that insisted on talking of the whole of the space, which made funding difficult. It made getting a seat at the table difficult because, you know, the EU, America, these massive donor agencies refused to talk about what was happening in Israel itself. They would only talk about the West Bank and Gaza. Um, that's had big implications for Badil as an organisation and I encourage your listeners actually to pay attention to the work that Badil does because they are holistic and have always been very principled and willing to turn down donor funding, massive grants, that sort of thing, to stick to their principles and hold firm in what it is to be Palestinian, what it is to address the Palestinian question and to centre the liberation of Palestine in any kind of discourse. I'd imagine as an international human rights lawyer, you wouldn't have been too welcome in that area by the Israelis? Well, because I chose to marry a Palestinian. I was banned from travelling into what's today called Israel. The fact that you were, you were from overseas and you were in there working with Palestine, they don't like... They don't, but they didn't know that I was doing that. You have to work quite... In order to get into Israel, it's very difficult. But the bigger question, the bigger issue for them is that I married a Palestinian and... That's not about me. That's actually about the way that they go after Palestinians. They want Palestinians to leave. They don't want Palestinians there. And so all of their policies are, you know, yes, it's hard to be there as a human rights lawyer. But actually, if I worked, if I chose to work for the UN, I probably could have got a visa. But because I didn't want to work for the UN, I wanted to work for Palestinian organizations and I married a Palestinian. It was actually much harder because they're trying to create the environment where he wants to leave. And if he leaves, he might take his family with him. Um, and that's a very clear strategy from the state. Um, so it's actually more difficult. And, and that might be surprising as an answer, but the reality is that, that that was much harder for me. And in terms of going back, that's what will make it harder um, rather than my international work. Okay, they don't like that, but their aim is the erasure and the, the cleansing of the Palestinian population. And that's why that's a bigger issue than me being a human rights organisation, a human rights lawyer. Well, under those circumstances, Melissa, what work were you able to do during those years you were there working as a human rights lawyer with Badil? I was a a, a researcher and worked um, under the direction of my um, incredible directors, writing papers, trying to analyse the the situation that was happening on the ground. We did a big piece of work in 2017, 18, 19 around the annexation that was happening. Um, That was the big issue at the time was the way the annexation was creeping through a a massive piece of work where we went and surveyed a 1,000 Palestinians living in what's called Area C of the West Bank, also Area B, little towns outside the major population centres to understand their experience of all the various Israeli policies and how that impacts on their day-to-day lives. Um, And then analyse or discourse was focused on how they want to just annex what what is Area C, that is 60% of the the West Bank. But what we were trying to show was this is actually a a process of creeping what's called de jure annexation. Actually, the laws are slowly changing so that not just in fact, but in law, they are taking over more and more and more of the West Bank and that the international community should be aware of that. So that's one piece of work we did. We did other research around uh, the right of return and we surveyed, again, 
thousands of Palestinian refugee youth in, Le- in the camps in Lebanon. Syria was a bit difficult to get to in Jordan, in Gaza, and in, in the West Bank, as well as those youth who were internally displaced within uh, what's called Israel, surveying them on the practicalities of what return looks like. Now, for your listeners, um, if they don't know, the right of return is foundational rights to Palestinian existence. Seven in every ten Palestinians you meet are actually a refugee or the descendants of people who were displaced from Palestine. And the right of return is the right to go back to their homeland. It is a basic right within refugee law and human rights law that we all possess. I have the right to leave Australia and come back. And the right of return, unless it's realised, you're never going to resolve the Israel-Palestine conflict, so to speak. And so we did a survey on, on what is it that the Palestinian youth actually envisage when we talk about the right of return. What does it mean to them? Um, so that was a fascinating um, piece of research that we published. Uh, and the other thing that we would do, so there were other pieces of research looking at you know, the way that Israel uses the public transportation system to segregate and fragment and isolate Palestinian communities, both in the West Bank and Gaza, but also in Palestinian cities and population centres within what's called Israel, their own citizens, and trying to lay that bedrock for the discourse that's now emerged where it's widely accepted that this is apartheid, apartheid throughout the whole of Israel and Palestine. The other part of the work that I would do while I was there was give tours um, and lectures to visiting delegations so that visiting delegations could come and understand the foundations of how we got learning Zionism and Zionism as colonisation um, and really unpacking all the narratives that you hear out there. So, And anyone can turn up and get a lecture from Badil. So if any of your listeners are ever thinking about going to Palestine, I would encourage them to reach out to Badil, B-A-D-I-L, Badil. It means the alternative in Arabic. And go and do a lecture with them. It's just a fascinating experience to understand and hear exactly what Zionism is and what's happened for Palestine. So that's that's the work that I was doing while I was there. And then I, when I landed back in Australia, um, I had to do something to do with Palestine when I came home. Um, and it was just before COVID hit, actually. And um, I found this group that were organising to meet to discuss the possibility of setting up something in Melbourne to do Palestine advocacy and that was how I landed, it was the week I landed back in Australia and got involved in doing activism here. What was the vision for Free Palestine Melbourne back then? I mean the vision was, as I understand it from talking to all the people that were at the table that day, is that Melbourne was the only major city in Australia that didn't have a group, community group, a collective that was coming together to organise on Palestine, um, to have regular events, regular discussions, a meeting, a space for meeting together, um, and for organising. And so that's the purpose was to come together and discuss what that might look like and how we could set that up and where we committed to making this happen. The vision was to have regular events and regular events that would give the opportunity to centre Palestinian voices and Palestinian narratives so that community in Melbourne could come and hear from from Palestinians and experts on Palestine and and not have to have that Jewish or Israeli voice at the table to discuss Palestine. It was also so that, you know, when when speakers um, or people would travel, um, eminent people would travel, we could be a group in Melbourne organising to bring them to Melbourne. If they were coming to Sydney, we could collaborate with Sydney groups, with Brisbane groups, with Adelaide groups to make sure they also came to Melbourne and, and, and we had that foundation. And it was also to have a group 
that had the infrastructure, the social media presence, the, you know, the mailing list, the website, the organizing capacity that could scale up when we needed to mobilize. And we saw that happen in May last year. The rallies that happened were the biggest Melbourne has ever seen for Palestine, and they were very much Palestinian-led rallies that were organised, um, and Free Palestine Melbourne sort of sat behind that as the group that had a bit of the infrastructure established to get the word out that this was happening and, and, and to rally people, and, and that's been a really useful thing. So that that was the vision, and it's a very broad group of activists, all kinds of demographics, Lots of non-Palestinians involved, Palestinians involved. We have people that, you know, everyone has their little niche within the group. We have a group there that do regular media monitoring. So every day emails go out to the group, you know, discussions of Palestine or Israel in the media and letters to the editor go out. So there's a little group within Free Palestine Melbourne that does that work and, and is regularly writing letters to the editor to make sure that the editors of these newspapers know that there are people watching them and holding them accountable. Um, so that's a great little thing. We have the groups that, you know, the, the the activists that come in, you know, when something's happening in Palestine and we really need to mobilise people to the streets. We have those activists that come in and get involved and really make sure that those those happen and they know how to mobilise hundreds, thousands of people. And then we have the other, you know, the other people in the groups that organise events. Probably we were very active through COVID doing online events um, and we're now starting to get back active again, organising events for the general public to come and attend. So, yeah, there's a, it's quite a diverse group trying to make sure that we're doing things regularly so there's always a presence and then we can upscale when when is needed. And there's a space for anyone who's got an interest in getting involved, regardless of your knowledge, in, in the group. Well, when you talk about all those activities, it's a wonder it took so long for a group to be established here in Melbourne. Do you understand why it did take so long? As someone, I'm actually not from Melbourne originally, so it, it, it is a bit perplexing to me as to why Melbourne might have taken so long. Look, I, as, my, as I understand it, there have been groups over the years and then those groups fall away for whatever reason and then um, it's been a couple of years since there was one in Melbourne. As, you know, famously Australia's most progressive city, it was a perplexing issue. But now that the group, we sort of, established just before COVID hit and we thought, gosh, is this group going to survive through COVID? And actually, we didn't just survive, we thrive. Um, and so now it's, it's quite a well-established little group. I've been going for two and a half years. And it's, you know, as all groups and activist spaces, they're tricky to navigate. There's, there's dynamics, there's politics that go on within the groups. But there's a core group that are really committed to Palestine and it's, just showing up and doing the work. Um, I think that's the key to groups surviving. And Palestine is, it's one of those issues that's notoriously hard. It's really hard to be heard. There's so many opinions on it. Everyone goes, oh, it's deeply complex. I mean, it is, but it's not. And it is, it's, it's a hard issue. I think one of the reasons it might have survived now as well is because it feels like there's a moment happening the last 12 months or so. And Palestine has more traction and people are starting to really genuinely understand Palestine for what it really is um, and seeing the linkages to other movements that have really, we've seen a surge, you know, Black Lives Matter, First Nations, sovereignty, these these issues. And that work has been done by you know, Palestinian Australians and First Nations 
working together and collaborating. And I, th- I think there's there's just traction in a way and people can feel that there's a shift that's happening in the broader public, which makes it easier to sustain the work too because for many years working on Palestine has been, it's been hard and you have to withstand a lot of criticism, a lot of attacks, a lot of gaslighting um, of the issue that happens. So that's what I'd offer is why it's been difficult, but it's established now and it's going and anyone's welcome to get involved. Perhaps it's useful if I share how. Um, we meet the second Saturday of every month at, now that we're back in person at the Kathleen Syme Library in Carlton at two o'clock. So everyone can turn up, anyone can turn up two o'clock, second Saturday of the month and there's a group of activists there meeting to discuss what activities are going to happen and if you if you're committed then you can join the internal mailing list and get involved well finally melissa how important is it to drag or encourage the alp to come along with you oh look it's critical the alp has been so disappointing frustrating but it's unsurprising you know you have the general membership who for many years have been asking it's been part of the platform to recognise the state of Palestine um, and to push leaders in that direction. The Zionist lobby influence is real and it's palpable. It's frustrating for many of us who know that at various points in history, people like Tanya Plibersek and Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong have held good positions. And, you know, they, they say some of the right things, but we have to we just have to keep pushing them to get to a better place in understanding the root causes and the, the the solutions that go to the root of the issue. And I think we will get there. Um, and I think we're watching, if, if the US is anything to go by, there is a palpable shift that's happening within the Democratic Party. And I think Labor will have, to, will, it will have no option but to head in that direction. But I think we've got a way to go and a lot of work to do in that regard. I'll just finish with two words that you said early in the interview, or three words, the West Bank gets you. How does that happen? I think it's a combination of things. There's an energy there. There's the people, Palestinian people are just incredibly welcoming, uh, incredibly hospitable. That is in stark contrast to my experience in Israel. And really, to some extent, in stark contrast to my experience in Australia. I also think it's the disconnect between what we've been told and educated in the media. You know, if you only ever get exposure to Palestine when, you know, things have flared up, bombing is happening, rage, you have a sense of what Palestine is. And it is so much more than that. And it's it's obvious from the minute you land there. And I don't know anyone that goes there and sees it for themselves and sees it with their own eyes that doesn't see exactly what's going on. It, it's palpable. But, you know, there's also something in, in, in Indigenous people on their land. There, there is genuinely something in that connection and that belonging that does get you. Great. Well, thank you very much, Melissa. Thank you, Jen. And many thanks to Melissa, Yvonne, for that interview regarding her work in Palestine and Free Palestine, Melbourne. And the library she mentioned is at 667 Rathdown Street, North Carlton. So do get on to Free Palestine, Melbourne, 
online or Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.